Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. I am so excited to welcome Amanda Moore Ortega to the show today. Amanda is a coach and more, and she specializes in helping high achievers prevent burnout and find more meaningful balance in their lives. In our conversation today, we're focusing on her book. It's called Inward to Upward, and it's all about her process and ideas for leading people through the inner work she says is necessary in order to create a life that doesn't just look impressive from the outside, but actually feels deeply fulfilling and aligned with our values and feels good on the inside too. As someone who went through a chronic stress period in my own life and really did not know I was in it until I was out of it, when I was working at a creative agency and balancing two babies under age two, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I'm forever grateful that through my training as a meditation teacher, I've learned so much about how stress wrecks havoc on our well-being. I think this is an important conversation I'm so glad you're here today. Let's get into it. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Early on in your book, which we are going to get totally into, you mentioned that according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, more than 47 million Americans quit their jobs in 2021. I know now we're calling that the great resignation. Are you surprised by those statistics? Well, at the time, I was very surprised because I didn't really, I knew COVID sort of shook things up and I realized it at the time. I think we all did. But when I resigned from my job, I did not have any idea I was a part of anything called the Great Resignation. I didn't even know there was a name for it. I just hit a wall of burnout. And I guess now looking back, it isn't very surprising. And I did a little research, you know, I've been doing research on stress and burnout since then. And one thing I I found was that there were burnout statistics long before COVID. So back in 2015, Deloitte did a burnout study and there were just over 90% of American workers were already raising the white flag saying, you know, I'm I'm burning out. I'm, you know, in millennials higher than, than other groups. So a lot of this, the writing's been on the wall for a really long time. And it really isn't only a COVID phenomena. I know in your book, a lot of what anchors your thinking is the idea of a toxic success trap. Can you give us from an eagle eye view, what defines a toxic success trap? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's my word for it. I guess people sometimes use words like, you know, the hamster wheel or the golden handcuffs or different metaphors for feeling trapped, right? And a lot of times this is happening to us when we get higher up in the ranks too. So like as our career gets, you know, it's kind of exciting at the beginning. And then as we get, uh, you know, up into the higher levels in our corporation or agency or as entrepreneurs, 
we start to feel trapped in this thing, what I call toxic success, which is really a belief. It's a belief system that I think we have culturally. One aspect of the belief system is that stress is necessary for success. And that's something that since I hit burnout, have realized that that's just almost like the water in our fishbowl. It's sort of this undercurrent of our culture that if we're not stressed, you know, we're not going on four hours of sleep and, and, heavily caffeinated and, you know, and then crashing and drinking the wine at night or whatever, if that isn't what we're doing, sort of this hustle culture, then we really aren't successful. So it sort of becomes synonymous with success. And we've started to believe that this chronic stress is an actual necessary fuel for us to be successful. Uh, It becomes kind of rare when I find people that have sort of come out the other side of burnout and they've realized that that is actually not fueling their success at all. But it is it is a rare occurrence to find someone that really sees like calm as something you you can be calm and successful or you can be right like you can be at peace and balance and successful like there's very few people you'll find that believe that right so it's a belief system and I'm not just calling it toxic to be dramatic chronic stress is toxic cortisol and and the stress hormones going through our blood it's not supposed to be a long term all day affair it's supposed to be a short term fuel for a you know, a heightened situation that we need it. That's the way it was designed. So toxicity is actually true. (laughs) It is actually true. Another part of the toxic success trap is this belief that we are trading present day suffering for future happiness, that somehow there's this trade-off or there's this process of earning rest or earning happiness that's happening. And I will Raise my hand and say, I believe that. I I definitely believed that for years without realizing I believed it. So so that's another thing is this beliefs are deep, right? So a lot of times we're not even really aware of them. And that belief that rest is not okay or that it needs to be earned or it needs to be brief so we can get back to our chronic stress because that's how we're supposed to be. If you can kind of, I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but it's something that I think is an undercurrent to our culture for sure. Yeah, I'm going to jump in there because that is a great starting point and a lot to unpack. So let's pause for a minute and go a little bit deeper. It's so simple, but poignant to just pause and recognize how many people have been in this mode. I, a past version of me was in this mode. And sometimes I think when you're in this, chronic stress phase, it's hard to realize that that's your baseline. And just your point that actually, no, we're not, that's not how we're built. Our baseline is supposed to be calm and kind of identifying a little bit why you adopted this belief that if you weren't go, go, go. And in that stressful phase, uh, you weren't achieving or accomplishing or you weren't successful enough. I thought your reflection on identifying and kind of having some aha moments about your own burnout journey in contrast to what was modeled by your mother were pretty profound. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Yes. And I think I also, in the book, I really try to make it very clear that When we go in and do this shadow work and we kind of go back and look at the source of our beliefs and really uncover that stuff, it's really not about finding someone to blame, although a source is an important thing to identify, right? So I do want to just preface that by saying holding, you know, a reverence for my mother 
and identifying her also as a source of my toxic beliefs at the same time is a really important process in my uh, my own inner work. Because if you think about it, so let, let me just, this is a little bit of a side note, but all of our beliefs come originally from a caregiver, a parent, early childhood impressions, right? Experiences we had, things people said. And if you think about it, our parents a lot of times are operating out of fear that they developed because of the fear that their parents were operating out of. And it's a vicious cycle over generation to generation. So just saying that is not anything wrong with my mother in this sense. She was in that era of the 60s and 70s where women were trying to come up to par with men in a professional way. And she was seen as this incredibly successful woman. She was an attorney. My parents were both lawyers and work was 24-7. And, you know, she was a successful attorney. She dressed the part. You know, she had someone else at the house with us while she was out of the house. And that's what we have to do when we're working. And when I was a child, I was sort of cut from a little bit more of a creative cloth or a slower pace. And I really wasn't much of a, it's surprising because anyone that knows me as an adult is like, are you kidding me? You're the most type A person that I've ever met. (laughs) But as a child, I wasn't. And my mother would say things like, you could be anything you wanted to be if you would only apply yourself or things along those lines, right? And I don't know, maybe some of your listeners have heard that as a child from successful parents or just parents that wanted the best for them or, you know, and you get geared towards success by either, it seems like there's two ways it can happen. One is you have really successful parents that say, this is the model, this is what you should be. There's no rest, go, go, go. Or, you know, maybe you have a different model that drives your fear of scarcity or, you know, your fear of maybe your parents weren't successful, so you want to be successful. But a lot of us, it really is helpful to go back and find the source of our beliefs if we're being driven in this this sort of toxic success trap kind of a way towards success. So, yes, that was my aha moment was I was like, why am I like this? And I realized you know, my mom also died very young. So just to mention that, and I do talk about that in the book, I believe it was stress related as as well, but she died young. And when she died, I lost really what I would consider my safety net in life. And that drove me to become more like her because I thought if I don't make my own safety net, I won't have one. I don't have a home base anymore. If I'm ever going to have a home base, I have to make it myself. And I became very successful with those fear-based thoughts, right? And I it drove me and I I was very successful. So when I say successful there, I just mean transactionally successful, not necessarily happy on the inside, but you know, I did well financially. So yeah. Well one of the key distinctions I feel like that was very clear in your book for me in talking about this toxic burnout type of success is that work looks like stereotypical success on the outside, but maybe on the mental, physical, internal side, it's destructive. And you also have a lot of commentary on how your research has shown that a lot of people that are in this, quote, successful positions aren't feeling completely happy or satisfied. So what's been surprising there as you've been farther into this journey and done more research? 
So I think just realizing how common it is that we can be successful and unhappy. It blows my mind because I don't think I've still uh, fully cracked the code on that or why we have built a culture around this, but we have these ideals about the pursuit of happiness and then whatever would really make us happy, we're actually sort of steered away from because it maybe doesn't feel safe to our parents or our parents want better for us and to them better is, you know, CEO, doctor, lawyer, whatever that looks like, right? And maybe that is going to make us happy, but maybe it's not. And so I just thought it was very surprising to see that, you know, there are a lot of very successful on paper professionals out there who are deeply miserable and not happy. And what makes me so sad about that is the belief that a lot of us hold, which is, I will be happy when. And that is either the weekend, the expensive vacation that I'm going on, the next purchase, retirement. And what's interesting is if we're not happy now, our neurons in our brain never really learn how to be happy. So it's it's like a muscle we're not even exercising, I guess is a good analogy, right? So we actually don't get to ever achieve happiness because what we're teaching ourselves is to be miserable and wait for happiness to just magically come one day. It's a very interesting thing because, you know, I never really thought of happiness as a behavior. I couldn't agree more. This is something I think about and talk about a lot too, because a lot of people, you know, are at a certain point in their adult life where they're like, okay, I just, I'm, I'm grinding. And when I, when I get this raise, when I make this level, then things will settle down. But when you think about it, that sort of thinking began for many people a long time ago, even in high school. Okay. When I get into a college, then I'll be set. And then at the end of college, it's like, okay, I just need to get a job. And then I'll, okay, then that's the time. Then I'll, I'll be good. And it really all circles back to the idea that you did open up with a little bit, but I'd like to go a little farther into here is trading that present day suffering for some future that we may or may not step into. What do you wish people could like stop and understand about that? Gosh, so many things, so many things. But one thing that really comes to mind that feels important to say is that all of those external achievements are really about acceptance. They're not really about happiness. So acceptance is some external arbitrary checklist that we think we're checking off. And I mean, you know, people have all these cliche things they say, like keeping up with the Joneses or whatever it may be, but it's really something I even find myself in the grocery store. I catch myself hearing what people think in the grocery store. (laughs) I am still a work in progress, but I would say, I bet you if we dig down deep and, and take some of these layers away, a lot of us might be a little bit afraid at, at first to go, I don't know what makes me happy because I have been conditioning myself all my life to external goals that I don't really know where they came from. Who's creating all these external goals? And I like to tell my clients a lot of times, you know, there's no one waiting at the end of your life with a trophy for having done it their way. And it is really interesting how we can somehow believe that in a way. Like I'm going to go through all these hoops, these sort of performance hoops, 
And what's going to happen? What's going to happen at the end? Is it going to be like a big trophy? Is there going to be like confetti in the air? Like what is going to happen? Right. And, and it's so hard to get out of the trap though. It's so hard. I mean, what do you say? Because I know that this is the point where there's going to be skeptics. So let me just play skeptical devil's advocate. So some people at this point are going like, okay, so what are we all supposed to quit our jobs and sit on the couch and meditate and have a dream board and not take action and not work towards anything? I Mm -hmm. mean, what I'm sure with the type of women you work with, that has come up. Absolutely. Where do you go there? So. I will tell you, I do work a little differently with people and I, it's not that I don't expect them to have goals. I have goals too. I'm still ambitious. I just wrote a book and published a book. So I'm still ambitious. I'm, this may be controversial, but I'm a capitalist. I I am not ever planning to sell all my possessions and move down to the river or anything. So, you know, you're talking to someone who is ambitious and really wanted to find what you're talking about. Like, what does it look like? to have it all? What does it really look like to have a happy life that is also successful? I still really like that safety net that I've built. And I still really like being able to travel with my kids and doing all the things, right? I'll tell you what I really think. I really think there's a point in our lives and it comes at different ages for different people where the chronic stress burnout train just runs out on its own. Okay. And so like, I shouldn't have to sell that to anybody. It's just not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. So there's that. Then what I would say is what if we had a movement in our culture where we redefined success to be healthy and we said healthy success isn't about not having anything and sitting and meditating. It's about having things and also having well-being. So I, what I do is instead of working with my clients on goals, we work on experiments. So that's how we do it. Because what if healthy success is really about how we feel? So like, here's an example. I have a nice house. The way my house makes me feel is safe, loved, comfortable. I love being a mom who, like all the teenagers like to come here because we have a big basement and a fire pit. I love cooking amazing meals in my kitchen for my family. So those feelings that correspond with that possession that does check off the Joneses list, right? It does externally, but it's also a feeling. So I've redefined success for myself to include, yes, this is going to be this, you know, our house is nice, but it's also a feeling and it gives me this way of giving you know, my kids a generational impact. They they have this home that I didn't have. My mom died young. I, I think about that. And I'm like, you know, that's a good thing that I have in my life, right? So how do you feel? I think that's what I would ask the listeners is how do you feel? So let's say I have this. How do I feel? How does it make me feel to have this? Or how does owning this make me feel? Because if it creates more anxiety to maintain, and it does not provide me any joy, then I don't see that as part of your healthy success model. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I I appreciate you sharing a a tangible example of how you would work with clients. I know it's nuanced, but I definitely appreciate the distinction of you not saying it doesn't mean you can't strive and, you know, own things for the right reasons. But I also feel like your line of inquiry with how 
how do you think it's going to make you feel seems like a good reflection also for some of these people who are taking on more in their lives. Like why, how do you think you're going to feel when you check that off your list or accomplish that or, or do that? Is that another kind of space where you apply this? Yes. I mean, you know, I, you're bringing me back to a memory that I have that I kind of briefly mentioned in the book, but is it makes me laugh at myself so much. But I used to always host Thanksgiving. So back when I was type A, I, I would consider myself recovering type A, but I would host Thanksgiving and my stomach would be in knots because I needed to host the perfect Thanksgiving. And it's like my turkey recipe, you guys, if you need a turkey recipe, let me know because I have the perfect turkey recipe and I have the perfect stuffing recipe. And it kind of makes me sad to look back on who I was, but I was not calm and present in in the, I'm, I'm here cooking for friends, my family, and I'm not present because I'm like, ooh, I've got to make this perfect signature cocktail for the Thanksgiving dinner and my house has to be perfectly clean. And I didn't even think of myself as a perfectionist, but the reason I bring this up is because a lot of therapists and coaches will use this thing. It's like a wheel of life diagram, right? And you've seen that where it's a circle and it almost looks like a trivial pursuit pie. And it has like pie pieces and it's like romance, finance, family. And it's got all these areas of life. And you're supposed to balance is supposed to be, okay, let's look at the wheel of life. Like how, how fulfilled are you in all these areas or which areas are more important? And it's this analytical tool. And I used to think of balance as juggling. And I'm going to, I'm again, please feel free to laugh at me, but I had type A checklists in every area of that wheel of life. And the reason I'm illustrating it this way is to say it took me a lot of work to put a little smaller circle in the middle of that wheel where I am and to really face my mindset and my approach to everything in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just want to pause there because bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation, I think so many women are in this mode and having children sometimes accelerates it because it's one more thing that they want to get right Mm -hmm. and do perfectly for women who maybe are kind of stuck in this overachievement trap. And you did say in the book that one of the flags you see in clients who maybe haven't really even like realized they're in this mode is a need to do excelling at everything in every part of their life. So I feel like your example of Thanksgiving is probably common. What are a couple more just common red flags that you can share? Just so if somebody's listening, they might have their own moment of like, whoa, okay, I see myself in that. Maybe I need to give this some thought. Yeah. One is, and this was heartbreaking. One was my middle child, who, by the way, still questioning the status quo to this day, love it, everything about him. But I was a single mother for five years. So I'd gotten divorced. And so I had no parents. I was divorced. Any help I got, I had to pay for. So that scarcity fear really drove a lot, right? And I was an executive and I was flying and seeing clients all over the country, you know, there was a point where people thought the nanny was the mom. I mean, so, you know, definitely no mother of the year awards right here, but I was providing and I had to, and and that's kind of what I did. But there was a point where my child, my middle child, Garrett 
said to me, mom, I don't understand how this works. And I'm not joking you. He said these words to me. Okay. So this is how he is. He's cut from a different cloth. He said, so you work so hard to give us opportunities. And then what do we do? We grow up and we work really hard to give our children opportunities. So whoever enjoys the opportunities. And I was like, and I didn't even get out of the trap at that point, but that was certainly a little moment where I saw outside of the trap for a moment. It was like the portal opened up, you know? And I, I, it was like, probably that was a significant moment. And we still laugh about it because he's just like that. He's just says these crazy things. He's 19 now, but he was like, you know, eight, but I realized we're in a trap when you look generationally at the trap that you're then creating for your own kids. And I, I, I just really don't want to make anybody feel bad, but guys, if we're not calm and present with our children, they're not going to be calm and present with their children, et cetera. Right. And if we're pressuring ourselves and we got an inner critic going crazy, you know, and they witness that as their model of what adulthood looks like. They're going to have anxiety. They're going to have to medicate because they got to grow up to be that stressed out adult and they don't want to do it. Right. Then they become that and they pressure their kids because this is a trap we're all in culturally. I think that that was actually, you shared that in your book. And I thought that was probably the most profound moment of personal growth that I absorbed from your book that you endured because. You just come out and say, and I appreciate that you're not mincing words. I also never would want to make anyone else feel like they're living life wrong, but you've been on both sides of this. And the conclusion you came to in the book was that overachieving at times can cause us to miss miracles. Yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you what, if we're not able to slow way down and breathe and look around, use your peripheral vision, get off the screens, right? And be present. You know, I had someone actually just the other day tell me about, she was at a fundraiser for the school and, you know, not to pick on the mom that she was seeing, but she was seeing a mom was on her phone and she she knew the mom was a physician. And she was like, oh, that's so hard that she's trying to be here for this fundraiser. And she's on the phone because, you know, she's a physician and boy, is she busy. And she actually noticed on the phone, she was on the Audi website. So then I thought, you know, and I'm not judging. This is not about judging. This is about, are we in the trap? Because we've lost our calm presence. We've lost our ability to live our lives in a sense. And, you know, okay. So to make this a happier story, cheer everybody up here, lots and lots and lots of great research on slowing down, making you more successful. I'm a big believer in prioritization and focus and simplification. These are all the things I truly believe in. And i will tell you they're going to make you wealthier, more successful, all the things, right? So this is not about a win-lose prospect. This is about a win-win prospect. That's what I want to let everybody know. And, And think about this, calm leaders, stressed out leaders, which one would you like to report to? Who do you want to work for? So to everyone listening that is a leader, like I was, I was the stressed out leader. I really want to call up my employees because I loved my teams, but I was a servant leader, but I had my talons in the work because I was like, I don't know, type A and crazy. I don't know. But I just, I really wanted the best for them. I wanted to grow these, you know, great 
young professionals into amazing professionals and things. And I wanted to be a great mentor. And I think they all still love me and stuff, but I kind of want to go back and go, was I like twitchy? Was I like, (laughs) (laughs) were y'all scared of me? You know, like I almost want to go back and ask them, what was it really like working for me? You know, I was managing two teams at the time when I burned out and left my job. And I loved my projects. I loved passionate people. Also, I found out burnout more than people who don't care. (laughs) I've experienced that. I mean, I get really excited and I want to do something and in past career life and I take it seriously. I don't want to half it, you know, and that's something we all can reflect on. Well, I know we're kind of coming up close on time here. I I pulled a quote I want to share and see what you have to say about it from your book. It says, in a culture that values money, power, and status, it's easy to believe our identity and self-worth are defined by our external accomplishments. Prioritizing criteria like grades, job, job title, or salary over our innate values can lead to a life that looks great, but may not feel great. So I'm curious, because you've been on both sides of this, And you made very clear that you're not telling people not to be goal-oriented or to go for big things, but that you are encouraging people to claim success in a way that doesn't deteriorate their physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Is that fair? It's very fair, yes. So what is one message Now that you're on the other side of this and have done all this research and all this inner work about success that you hope your own children would take into their lives. Well, you know, I think about this a lot, especially since my mother died young. I always have in the back of my mind this fear that I'm going to leave and they're going to be here without me. So I do have that underlying fear. And if I could wish one thing into their hearts, it would be to value your uniqueness. So I think what I call act one of life, maybe we are supposed to be picking up from around us. Like, what are the standards? What are the criteria of success? What What's the water level? Like what, you know, getting our bearings in the world, but not measuring our own worth based on performance against those, right? There's more to the story. So I truly believe that we were created unique, uniquely us for a reason. If you think about the billions of people before us and the billions after there's no two alike. And every, you know, fingerprint is a different design. That's insane. Like there has to be a value to uniqueness in the system of life, no matter what your spiritual beliefs are. Right. So I think when that burnout train does run out because it is unsustainable. So that misery isn't going to be sustainable. If you have the opportunity to look at your act two as a realignment with who you truly are, and then give the world of those treasures of those special I mean, what? You're unique. You're unique, right? So your uniqueness, if you can go back and value that, then give of that. I think that's how we tap into the eternal. I really, really do. I think that is what we're supposed to do. I'm with you. I mean, one of my parts of definition of success for me is, and I, you know, I would say to my kids is figuring out what makes you unique and special, because I think everybody is special And then seeing how you can share your gifts with the world. Yeah. And, you know, I think in act one, we want to pick up all these great skills. So take them with you, you know, carry them forward into act two. I just, I, I, that's what I want. I want my kids to value their uniqueness and listen to that 
quiet inner voice that gets drowned out by all the noise in the world. That's, I just want them to hear that. Absolutely. All right. Well, I always close with a reflection. So in this area of burnout, toxic success traps, and self-reclamation, I would say, what's one question women could be asking themselves more? This isn't an exciting question, but how do I feel? I just think we've sort of been conditioned to devalue feelings and value thoughts. And thoughts actually get us in a whole lot of trouble. And I think to go back and say, how does this feel? How do I feel right now? And to get back in touch with that, it's actually good data. So for all the analytical people out there that might poo-poo what I'm saying, it's data. Feelings are data because they're going to tell you, like if your stress level's off the charts right now, that's going to tell you, are you in alignment? Are you being driven by fear right now? Are you feeling control anxiety? You know, and start to analyze your feelings because it's going to help you find out what you really want to feel in your life. And that's going to help you to find success. I love that. And also, as some people that are in this overachieving trap are looking around at a life they've built, if it doesn't feel good, you're the only one that knows. Okay. Amanda, this was such a wonderful conversation. I know people are going to want to follow you and read your book and learn more. So where can we find you? So my book is actually at inwardtoupward.com. There's a little website there and you can even download the soul's value assessment there and do your own analysis if you want. Um, It's also on Amazon and I am on Instagram and my handle is at coach Amanda Ortega, but I try there to do a lot of, you know, just sort of reminders of like that calm presence. And I try to, I try to almost give you, you know, all these like mini skills and, you know, coaching skills and things like that. So Instagram is a good place to connect with me. Wonderful. As always, we will connect that and the title of your book in the show notes. Amanda, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at at WhitneyWoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.